Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we explore Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Okay, I am Sebastian, and I am here with Chris. Hello, hello. And our special guest for today is Whitney Siebold, or Seibold. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Whitney? It's Seibold. Uh, no, one, Seibold. no one pronounces it correctly, so that's fine. Um, Whitney is a podcaster. Uh, he has a, a really fun podcast uh, called uh, My Dinner with My Dinner with Andre, which I've participated with, uh, with Jennifer. And he also has some other podcasts and stuff. Whitney, do you want to sort of pimp your podcasts? It's not just podcasts. It's a whole bloody network. Uh, network. We call, we call ourselves the critically acclaimed network, me and uh, one William Bibiani. And we have film review podcasts and television review podcasts. We're reviewing every episode of Star Trek. We're reviewing every episode of Batman. Uh, wow. Depending on where you subscribe through the critically acclaimed Patreon, you can have access to uh, any or all of these podcasts. You can even have a custom podcast. It's what we're doing with our time these days. We pretty much put out a podcast a day. We That's never, incredible. ever stop. Uh, so I get to spend today going on yet another podcast in case you can, can't get enough of the sound of my voice. So is that where you're going after this podcast, right onto another one? More or less, more or less. Uh, there's I have to sp- spend some time uh, actually watching the movies I'm going to review and then right. review them on a podcast. Uh, but yeah, go over to pa- patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network and you can get all our all of our stuff there. Well, as I am new to the podcast world, I have to say, you know, my hat's off to you for putting out that much content because uh, it's it's kind of hard. <laughs> it's a harder thing to do than I thought. But yeah, that's that's pretty incredible that you can do that much podcasting. Uh, and, and we're happy to do it, especially, you know, while everybody's indoors locked down. That's uh, uh, just something we can do and to provide. Well, your efforts are Herculean. But if there's nothing else to do, pimp or whatever, shall we get on to the discussion at hand of Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets? Oh, yeah. Valerian and the city of a thousand planets in this economy (laughs) that is the title right i get a little confused sometimes with this movie it's valerian in the city of a thousand planets right that's right okay Uh, whitney i know that you're a big fan of this movie uh chris uh i know you're a fan as well right would you say you're a fan of this movie yeah i i'm a fan i enjoy the visuals and i enjoy it for what it's worth you know and for its intentions i also like it but what are your thoughts on the director, Luc Besson, Whitney? I've, I've talked about Luc Besson a lot. I mean, the, the fact that he's a, a complete creep is, is now part of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, but uh, for the longest time, uh, critics talked about him as if he were his very own genre, which he is. He doesn't, he doesn't direct every Luc Besson movie. He produces some as well. But uh, every mm-hmm. film that he's involved with, 
does have this really kind of broadly melodramatic, wonderful Euro trash feeling to it. Yeah. There's there's going to be a scene in every one of his movies where, whether they're made in America or in France, where they end up in Paris, and uh, there's going to be some old guy or some hot live young woman kicking ass for an extended period. Those tend to be sort of the uh, the mainstays of the Luc Besson genre, and there's a kind of mm-hmm. a weird playfulness. His films don't tend to skew incredibly dark. Uh, yeah. you know, like The Professional might be his darkest movie. Uh, all of his other ones are a little bit uh, jaunty and flighty and, for lack of a better term, French. Well, I think that um, he's, you know, I, I have thoughts about French sci-fi in general, um, and I think he is a, a big proponent of that, especially with The Fifth Element. Are you a fan of The Fifth Element? I'm a big fan of The Fifth Element. It's been a while since I've seen it. I remember when it came out in the late 90s, and it sort of made a stir with people my age. I was in college, and uh, it, it was one of those films that very briefly made its appearance in, in poster form on dorm room walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it at the time, it was seen as like kind of mini-revolution because... Uh, we hadn't seen a science fiction film quite that elaborate in a while. Keep in mind, this was in that big gap uh, in between uh, Star Wars movies. So gigantic yeah. space epics weren't being put out on the regular yet. Mm-hmm. This level of special effects was a little bit of an anomaly. So to see something so colorful mm-hmm. and strange and exciting and also very funny uh, was really striking and a lot of people really glommed onto it including me i really loved the fifth element i watched it a lot i'm not sure how it holds up it's been quite a while since i've seen it (laughs) chris you are a fan of the fifth element right yes i am um i too was in college and i was expecting something completely different you know all i heard was that it was luke basson and gary oldman who's my favorite actor so when I went in and saw it, you know, I was expecting some kind of hard sci-fi and I was totally taken aback by the humor and the lightness and, you know, um, kind of the ham factor of the whole movie. And uh, I've turned around to really enjoying that part of it. And I also remember being blown away by the special effects. And I can report now that they're quite cartoony, even though they are, you know, fun to look at. Um, they don't they don't quite hold up in, in today's uh in you know cinematic environment but it, i still really enjoy the fifth element yeah i'm also a fan of the fifth element i saw it in theaters at the time uh because i have always been a big sci-fi nerd mm-hmm. and i you know i was really impressed especially with the sort of cityscapes that he he created that was you know right before lucas came back with the prequels and we mm-hmm. saw coruscant and then it sort of became a kind of common thing that we would see in science fiction, these elaborate cityscapes. Um, but I, I was a fan of the movie. And, and in general, I, I enjoyed Luc Passan's films. I liked The Professional. I liked uh, La Femme Nikita. Mm. Um, it doesn't surprise me that he's sort of a creeper because I think that that's kind of there in his movies. But, you know, if you can put that aside... There's certainly uh, lots of entertainment value to be had. Now, did you guys see Valerian in when it came out in the theaters in 2017? Well, I, I, I'm a professional critic, so I got to see a press screening of it. Right. I got to see it on, on the big screen at the gigantic movie theater at, uh, in Universal City. And I've I found that when, you, uh, when you're forced as a member of the press to see a film on like the gigantic screen that the studio can wrangle up. 
mm-hmm. and it's going to be this gigantic spectacle and they insist on that you drive way out out of your way to the special theater to see it that film will usually bomb uh <laughs> like they're, they're really really trying to sell you really hard and when i went to go see valerian at the press screening it was one of those rare occasions where they said just buy anything you want at the concession stand and we'll cover it. So they were buttering you up literally. With yeah, they, pretty much. And you know, a lot of critics were like, just said, well, heck, give me like four boxes of Junior Mints for each pocket. I just had a cup of tea. And uh, yeah, I went, so I went to go see it with a bunch of other critics. And at the time, all of the critics were reacting in complete awe. So I got to see it with a bunch of people who were incredibly impressed and then who went on to write incredibly bad reviews. Uh-huh. Uh, the other films I saw there were uh, Warcraft. Ooh. You remember how well that film did. Yes. Uh, oh, and what, what was the other one? It was another big bomb. Uh, oh, that movie will be on this podcast, I assure you. <laughs> I was just going to say, list them all, he'll do them. <laughs> yeah, so, the you know, that kind of treatment, uh, in, as a critic, you see that sort of treatment and you think to yourself, well, this is going to tank. Uh, well, I mean, that's that's my cynical... Uh, reaction to that kind of thing if if the studios are working extra hard to give you like swag mm-hmm. it, it, my gut instinct is to become start to become a little suspicious of the movie yeah but you know as a professional once the lights start to go down you just let all of that cynicism melt away and let the film happen and sure uh, valerian uh was impressive it's like i was su- suspicious that they're trying to sell us off with candy but they didn't yeah. need to because it's just so v- visually overwhelming was it in 3D? Did they show it to you in 3D? No, we got it in 2D, which I was grateful for. Uh, 3D, uh, especially in a big, fast-moving action movie, I find to be a complete distraction. It, it it works best if you're at an amusement park and you're seeing you know a 20-minute Terminator interquel, but yeah. it's not going to work for a, a quick-moving action movie. Just You can't stage a 3D scenario and also have fast edits. I, they don't understand that. Chris, I know that you and I were sort of excited to see this movie being big sci-fi geeks, but neither yeah. of us ended up seeing it in the theater. Then you got it on uh, 3D Blu-ray and we watched it together. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember uh, that? Any thoughts about that screening? You, me, and Troy, I believe, watched it together in 3D. Yeah, I think, well, it's hard to not have a good time with, you know, a bunch of buddies watching a, a great, huge sci-fi spectacle at home. So it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I I almost forgot that I didn't see it in the theater because I remember discussing it with coworkers at the time. I had a coworker, Chris Poole, who went down, I think, to the, like, the 4D cinema to see it in one of those chairs that shakes you. And, yeah. and his review coming back, I don't know if he... If it was because of the 4D thing, but it was all too much. And I think he said, skip it. So we eventually just, you know, waited until the right time to see it at home. Um, But I I regret, I wish I had seen it in 3D in the theater, because I feel like that is the way to enjoy this type of huge spectacle for me is just, you know, eyes wide open and just give me it all. Give me how it was totally intended. Give me the huge theater experience. I don't, I'll save my thoughts for the movie as we go through it, but I don't remember the 3D, even though we saw it in 3D, -hmm. I don't remember it being bad and I don't remember it being good. So it's sort (laughs) of, I've, my impressions of it are, have completely been uh, washed away in the sands of time. I'm sure it was fine, but um, it wasn't the kind of 3D experience that I, you know, remembered, oh, this movie can only be seen in Mm -hmm. 3D. As impressive visually as it is, I don't. I don't think it really needed the 3D. 
So we start off the film, we're starting off Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. I think the first thing that has to be brought up is that this is based on a French comic book, uh, Valerian and Laureline. And it's a little bit of a bummer that Laureline gets her name left out of the yeah. the marketing, um, especially considering she's a ma- the major character. I think she even has more screen time than Valerian, if you really count it out. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and the movie is better for it, I yes. think. Um, yeah, Cara Delevingne is great. Uh, I guess the, the studio thought the selling point was, like, the dude in the city, yeah. but not the fact that they have Cara Delevingne, this charismatic, gorgeous model, leading their movie. Yeah, it sort of, I think... St- so it sets a bit of a bad tone, especially when you know that that the comic was called that and you're coming in, and you're like, why isn't she getting her name on the marquee? But what I do like is the initial prologue we get where we're sort of Love seeing it. the setup to the city of a thousand planets starting, you know, in our time and jumping ahead and ends up being thousands of years. It's all set to a very obvious music cue, which is... Uh, uh, David Bowie's uh, Space Oddity. Space Oddity, of of course. There's he's got a few space songs yeah. in my defense, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Space Oddity. Whitney, what is your feelings on this sequence? I I think it's the way to open a movie. I was thinking yeah, of stuff like totally. uh, like Scream. You know, just the the opening punch before the title is one of the more impressive and ingenious ways to introduce you into the world of the movie you're about to see. Uh, I agree. Give, it's a way to give us this truncated version of the timeline in a wonderfully visually dynamic way. It's edited beautifully. Uh, the whole sequence goes, yeah, we listen to Space Odyssey and what we see on the oddity, excuse me. And what we see on the screen is the space station being built in the 1970s. And we kind of start to, we skirt up to the future a little bit. And we get to see that the International Space Station has this conglomerate of international astronauts and nude countries come on and they shake hands as they enter the space station. As we go further and further into the future, we get to see how big the space station eventually gets. More nations join in and eventually aliens start arriving at the space station and the aliens add on to the space station. And in addition to each alien species coming on the space station and shaking hands with the American diplomat or just the human diplomat, we also get to see the diplomats aging as the time is passing. So there's a young diplomat in the next clip. They're old. And the next one is clearly their progeny is now welcoming mm-hmm. the new people on. So we get to see this really beautiful, poetic, incredibly just cinematically communicative kind of way. The passage of time. It's great. Yeah. Simply great. Yeah. You know, on this podcast, we've discussed a lot of movies whose intros do not work. And it's really interesting to see how, you know, so many things get botched. This is the way to do it. You know, uh, I think the song is pitch perfect. The way they switch from, you know, like a sort of four by three archival image and then the scope opens up and then even the 5.1, the song expands, like everything kind of works to give you that ooh ah feeling and and I really love the the hopeful nature of what they're saying about you know this alpha or whatever the space station is that how like you know we could all just come together in space and and befriend each other and build one giant city together and you know there there can be peace and harmony between races and alien races and and I really love that that concept and just how it Finally, when they have to push it away from the Earth and it just gets sent off 
to become its own thing. I think it's it's a wonderful concept that probably isn't explored enough in in the movie, um, but it's a wonderful intro. Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the most elegant setups for a sci-fi epic that I can think of. I would argue more elegant than The Crawl and Star Wars mm-hmm. and whatever other like, type of uh, sci-fi movie you want to throw out. It really sets the tone well for the movie, and I feel that this initial chunk of the movie is very strong, and it really gets you primed for an awesome movie. Yeah. I don't always think that the movie lives up to this expectation, no. <laughs> but we will. Um, is there anything else to say about this? Rutger Howard. I mean, that's like his one moment. Like... Oh, right. Rutger Hauer in one of his last roles. Yeah, just uh, the president of the galaxy or whoever he is, um, who will later be replaced by Herbie Hancock. Right. Uh, Chris, you used the word hopeful. And I think one of the reasons I'm drawn to this movie is I'm, I'm a big Trekkie. I've yeah. been watching Star Trek my whole life. Mm-hmm. And there is this kind of air of uh, diplomacy and peace that runs through Star Trek that I've always really admired. And that's something that about Valerian, these aliens come on board and there's not war. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, the whole theme of the movie will be diplomacy is better than war. And when you engage in war, that's the ultimate black stain you can have on your soul. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that when we get to the story, because that that doesn't really reveal itself to the end. Anyway, so our next segment, we moved, we jumped 4,000 years uh, later, and we are on the planet Mule. Mule, I believe, is the name of the M-U-L, planet? right. Or how it's yeah. pronounced. Yeah, with an they, umlaut. They say, they say mule, but also mole throughout the movie, so it's a little unclear. Mm. Another thing that's a little unclear, and perhaps, uh, Whitney or Chris, you can clarify this, the the aliens that live on this planet are known as pearls. Is that they're, they're called the pearls of mule, oh. the pearls of mule. Okay. Yeah. I, I had a little, I struggled with that in my notes. I just called them the mule, but uh, the pearls, they're referred to as the pearls later. Yeah, the, the, the people are called the pearls of mule and the creatures are called mule converters. So it's a, yes. a and these sound like, Objects, not people, so it's a little confusing, perhaps, your first time through. They're they're just the white Navi to me. <laughs> yes. I'll take I'll take the beach Navi over the forest Navi anyway. Oh yeah. I couldn't agree more. I have I had the exact same thought. You you very much get a sense of there this is a sort of a take on uh the Avatar Navi, but I really prefer these aliens. They remind me of the uh French uh animated film Fantastic Planet. Yes. Although those were blue, weren't they? They're blue. They're different. It's not exactly the same, but they... I, I know what you're talking they about. They invoke that yes. for me. And and that's a an animated f- film I really like. I feel that this segment of the, the movie has that kind of 70s sci-fi craziness to yeah. it. Not in the dystopian sense, but in the sort of imaginative sense. It also evokes Mobius and, and you know other French comic artists. Did, Mo- did Mobius do the original... Uh, comic? No, Valerian, I think, predates Mobius' career. Okay. Um, let, me, let me look up the actual dates. It ran for decades. Ran right. from like the 60s all the way until uh, like 2010 or something. Yeah. It's for sure in the same wheelhouse. I mean, it. Yeah. whoever influenced him influenced that. I mean, it's definitely on that spot. Yeah, it definitely evokes the Mobius, you know, Metal Herolant, aka mm-hmm. Heavy Metal look, which is something I love. I absolutely love that whole vibe. I wish more movies 
um, took this. We recently talked about John Carter, and I was constantly saying throughout that podcast that I wished it had just been more imaginative. Mm. And I feel yeah. like if of all the things you can levy at this movie, you cannot accuse it of being unimaginative. I love the planet. I love the seashell motif, which ties in very elegantly to the pearl elements. Honestly, I could watch a whole movie of this segment. Like I could spend <laughs> the whole movie in the, when we talk about people wanting to live in Pandora, Pandora yeah. I, I want to live on mule. I'd much rather <laughs> live on mule. Yeah. You can really see the influence of just, you know, Avatar. And I think I read an article about how Luc Besson went to James Cameron after Avatar and was basically just like, how did you do this? Because he wanted to make Valerian. And you can totally see how the motion capture and the special effects totally translated to this idea. And he's standing on his shoulders and, and yeah. made it happen. And I, in some ways, more successfully than Cameron, you know, I mean, this is like, yeah, a world that you want to visit and is even more, you know, serene and, and beautiful than Pandora. Something else I appreciate, you look at the Navi and uh, other critics have pointed this out, that they're a little too perfectly designed. Like they, mm -hmm. they look like Disney cats with the big eyes and, and their cat noses and there, but there's something weirdly dull about the Navi. Yeah. Because of that design, they don't seem like something really weird or unusual or alien. They just sort of seem like fantasy, like typical fantasy creatures. You might see them in like next to a unicorn on a blacklight poster. What I appreciate about a, uh, appreciate about the pearls of mule is that they do have this sort of androgynous sensuality to them mm -hmm. and uh, a sort of comforting bliss i get more about the species and the way they communicate in this little opening segments than i do from watching all of avatar where yeah. there's still some vague things about how their ponytails are also their genitals and they plug them into trees it's like what is happening here? That's a little like clearly somebody's not thinking something out. That's pretty straightforward, I think. <laughs> oh well, like, all right, fine. You explained it perfectly. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I'm not 100% clear on is the converter creature and what that. Yeah. What is really going on there? How is this? Yeah. Do you feed him a pearl and then he shits more pearls? Like I, that is what happens. That that's their magic. You, okay. They they crap out more matter than they eat uh-huh like right. they somehow like are able to create matter in their body so they eat something and they just sort of replicate it in their body and then they poop it out through their back but what does that do to facilitate life on this planet why is this so crucial to this species well they they learn that they they sort of harvest the pearls out of the ocean uh -huh. and they're like batteries they're full of energy Right. And part of their daily ritual is they harvest these pearls, they absorb the energy from the pearls, which I assume, like, keeps them young and vibrant and healthy. Yeah. And then they uh, end up giving some of the pearls back by dropping it in that little volcano thing. It all, it all makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've seen this movie a few times and I struggle... I, I like it all. I like to watch it. I think it's really pleasant to watch in a sort of weird screensavery sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't understand. I just don't get what's going on. But now I have a better understanding of it. Um, one thing that's it's also taken me a few viewings to understand is that the characters we're meeting here, there's a daughter and a father and a right. mother. Yeah. I think when I first saw it, I thought they were either friends or lovers or something. I didn't – because they're, they don't age – which, you know, is yeah. a cool thing. 
for an alien, you know, species, but I couldn't figure out what the family dynamics were going on. I, and the father is voiced by a woman, right? So it's all kind yes. of nebulous. I feel like they're all very um, androgynous, you know, fluid in their sexual sexuality. Yes, gender fluid for sure. But I, I mean, the whole s- sequence is just visually amazing. And the converter's cute too. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, as far as a little alien MacGuffin goes, mm-hmm. it's it's a fine, cute alien MacGuffin. I, I think it's really heartrending that we get, it's like uh, that scene in The Fly 2, where mm-hmm. uh, Eric Stoltz brings out the kitten and shows it to his mm. Daphne Zuniga right before throwing it in his teleporter, and previously we'd seen the teleporter like rip animals apart, so it's like, we're about to see this these people get ripped to shreds, aren't we? You're just, you're introducing yes. the, the these beautiful aliens to us just to kill them, and it's really cruel, because right then... A ship crashes through the sky. They don't know, clearly don't know what's going on, and it destroys the entire planet. And this is the inciting incident for the whole story. A bunch of the family, I guess, of these aliens retreat to a old vessel, or are they retreating to a uh, ship that's crashed in this battle? Right? Yeah. Um, they manage to secure themselves inside, but the daughter, she is sort of trapped outside in a sort of scene that's very similar to the one that we'd see in Godzilla later, where uh, uh, Ju- Juliet Binoche is trapped outside the glass from Brian Cranston. And this big explosion happens, and she dies, but her spirit is sort of sh- shot across the galaxy, I guess, right? When she dies, she sends out this big psychic wave, which lasts through... Yeah, kind of broadcasts throughout the galaxy looking for a compatible mind. Hmm. Uh, yes. And we'll learn later that it's also traveling in time. So it could have, we'll learn that it could have been coming not only from anywhere, but also any time. It could have been many, many years ago. And the lucky recipient <laughs> of this is the character of Valerian, as played by Dane DeHaan. Uh-huh. Now, if there is a central flaw to this film, <laughs> its name is Dahan. Yeah. <laughs> because here's my problem with the movie, and that is this this actor, who is a really good actor, I've enjoyed him in a great many things. I think he, in the right role, he is very charming and charismatic. I think he makes a great villain. But what I don't think he makes a great is dashing heroic <laughs> rogue. Nope. Who's supposed to be some like Han Solo or something. Yeah. He mm. just does not fit this role. Not at yeah. all. We, on the way out of the press screening, that was the first thing we talked about was how how just grievously miscast he was. And we yeah. were thinking if, if you had uh, any one of the Marvel movies, Chris's in that role, you got like. Uh, right. Yeah. Or, or Chris Pine, or Chris Pine. Yeah. Like if if you have somebody who has a little bit of a twinkle in their eye and does have that roguish jerkwad uh, appeal, yeah. then the movie just would have gone all the way. But yes. Dane DeHaan, he's a really quiet, broody actor. Yeah. He's a very good actor, but you know I'm used to seeing him, like you said, play like villains or heavies. 
Uh, he was in one of the Quibi movies where he played a stalker, and he was perfect for that. Did you ever see the uh, the Metallica movie? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I've seen it several times. <laughs> I'm a Metallica fan. But yeah, Metallica through the Metallica through the Never is terrific, uh, yeah. and not just because of the Metallica music, but all this weird post-apocalypse stuff yeah. where Dane DeHaan is fighting a guy on a skateboard. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, yeah. he's he's good in something like that mm-hmm. where he's in this like nightmare apocalypse yeah. world and he's like yeah. fighting out of desperation and he's handsome enough because he's a really good looking guy yeah he's handsome enough to pull off that kind of like flip winking attitude in like certain still shots but you listen to him speak yeah 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 <laughs> yeah man it's like th- this is th- this is the shortest way but it sure isn't easy <laughs> Like, no, you, you need somebody to deliver that with a little bit of panache. Yeah. And that's something he has none of. He has no Elan. A mutual friend of ours, Robert Sylvie, uh, put it this way. He is a ventriloquist dummy being puppeted by Keanu <laughs> <Yes>. Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, he does sound like Keanu. And it it's another one of those central mysteries in life is... How does Keanu get away with it? Because, you know, like somehow he can do all that and still sound like what Dane DeHaan's doing. Anyway. I have an answer for that. Okay. I think Keanu has an inherent goodness that is so strong and true. Yeah. And it's true to who he is that he wins you over because you somehow know on Mm -hmm. an instinctual level that Keanu's a good guy. I think you're right. That's how I think it works. Yeah, yeah. Dracula is being the only one that where it, it, he can't overcome. I've even come to forgive him in that. Uh, I've gotten over it in Dracula. Okay, <laughs> I I will never get over Dracula. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> and I I will never forgive uh, like much ado about nothing. Everybody's great in it except yeah. for Keanu. Oh, he's yeah. really bad yeah. in that. I would say that's worse than Dracula. <laughs> Not to disparage Dane DeHaan as a person. I don't have no idea what he's like. Yeah, yeah he's a great actor. Like, but I don't think he has that innate goodness that just yes. oozes out of him the way that Keanu Watching does. the special features, I they mention how basically he was cast against type and Valerian is this sort of, you know, John Hamm type, you know, roguish, good looking guy. And they're like, let's just go against type. And, and, and I feel like in all the production artwork, it almost looks like they were putting in Leo DiCaprio. And I feel yeah. like they were like, well, let's just get poor man's Leo DiCaprio. Yes. But, you know, yeah. they knew what they were doing. They knew they were taking a risk by, you know, casting Dane DeHaan because he's not what you'd typically think for this type of role. And they gambled yeah, sure. and and it doesn't work. And I also think Kara, what's her character's name again? Kara Delevingne De- De- or Delevingne. Delevingne. Kara Delevingne. The character seems like as soon as she joins, she's like, well, I'm college educated and I'm blah, blah, blah. And it almost seems like, oh, she's supposed to be the stuffy, you know, uptight one to his roguish. Yeah. And so that wasn't working either. But she does better than Dane DeHaan. So I feel like both of them are, are a little bit miscast for what the characters are supposed to be. And their rapport yeah. just doesn't work at all for me. It's definitely the weakest part of the movie. I like her a lot. I initially was a little so-so on her. I think the problem was that I had seen Suicide Squad mm-hmm. before this, and she is so bad in Suicide oh, Squad. Not because it's her fault, yeah. but because it's just a terribly written role and movie. But I sort of had a bad taste in my mouth from that. But I, I've come to, after watching this movie a few times, I've come to really find her charming. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree that it's a weird, I mean, it, that dynamic is just a typical dynamic. One person's stuffy, one person's the, the one that's going to loosen them up. 
but I think you would have done better to reverse that dynamic, even yeah. if, if it was going against what the comic is to make him the uptight one and have her be the, for lack of a better term, yeah. uh, quirky it girl, you know, like the, that I think would have worked better. Um, Agreed. But I do agree that their love story is really bad and, and making it worse is this, you know, sort of creepy thing where he's just kind of it's it's very innocent in a way because he's trying to get her to marry him but at the same time it just feels creepy yeah honestly to me it sounds to me like a frenchman trying to write american dialogue you know and he's like what would they say in an american movie they'd say hey babe you got to do this or that you know and it doesn't work and there's there's not that you know edge to it and he's but i feel like that's what he's trying to go for and it and it does not work not all couples relate in the same way i watched this film a couple times and i realized that the way valerian and laureline act toward one another where it are are they're like kind of on the brink of dating but they're not it's not like you know this is not ernst lubitsch this mm-hmm. is not you know a lot of uh snappy banter and chemistry it's actually kind of a more antagonistic relationship mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's based on sort of pushing each other around and embarrassing each other. And yeah. that's actually something that I've seen in a lot of European movies mm-hmm. uh-huh. uh, and a lot of French films. And the way uh, there's this kind of antagonistic element to the romance that I think isn't really reading when you give it to American actors. Mm-hmm. So I think the actors were the ones who didn't really know what to do with this. I think if their relationship were the same, but they were speaking French, then a lot of their chemistry would be... A little bit more palpable. Interesting. Uh, in, in fact, uh, when I rewatched this on the Blu-ray, it doesn't have a French language track, but it does have a Spanish language track. And I tried watching some of the scenes dubbed, and it's kind of astonishing how well they work when you hear it dubbed in another language. <laughs> That's hilarious. And you know, it it really also points to the fact that Bruce Willis is so perfectly cast in The Fifth Element because he has the swagger. He he knows how to take it seriously, but not too serious. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's kind of just magical casting in, in that role. And if, if they had just nailed it in a similar way here, we could have had something. Well, the fifth element also has a sort of similarly creepy by American standards, I guess, <laughs> relationship where, mm-hmm. you know, you've got, uh, Mila doesn't speak and he, she's, she's, she's perfect. Right. She's this perfect woman who doesn't speak and he's this rough working class guy, but you know, he immediately falls in love with her and you know it's similarly similarly off-putting in some ways but i think it works better than this love story yes you know even with all of that but i you know i I think there's something to that that it's a very french thing and i that we probably aren't really getting it the way the french would but so we you know we get them as our our main character our duo um, and we go to the planet Kirin. I believe that's what it's called, Planet Kirin. It's kind of a deserty planet, but with cool uh, multicolored clouds, which I love. And, you know, just little details like that can just go such such a long way to creating a really engaging world. Yeah, it looks like a '70s album cover that you you know smoke a joint to. And totally, totally, like something Yes would put exactly. out. Exactly. 
<laughs> I was just about to make the joke. They're very into yes on this. <laughs> I, I'm way, very into yes, and I think all science fiction should just make yes album covers their <laughs> production design, and I'd be happy. What we get here is they're going undercover to try to get the uh, converter. Not exactly sure how this is all set up. It kind of rushes by you, but they have to go into this thing called the big market which is a trans-dimensional marketplace. This concept is so good. Yeah. This is such a great setup for a scene. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of fun sci-fi ideas in this movie, but I think this is arguably one of the best ones. For sure. I like there's a little setup where they shoot a tranquilizer remote on an alien character, and then one of the clearly French side characters puts on this screen over his head and he's, you know, basically piloting this alien uh, through the remote. But yeah, I really, I really enjoy the setup of this scene. What I appreciate about, I just watched uh, the movie Tenet for the first time a couple days ago before this recording. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a movie that has a lot of like weird science fiction ideas that they're not thinking through entirely. Uh -huh. The movie's about like traveling forward and backward through time, at, but at the same rate. So if you start moving yeah. backward in time, you're just sort of aging at the same rate. And they don't ever really explain in that movie how the physics work. Like, okay, if you're uh -huh. moving backward in time, does the car you drive also move backward in time? How does driving a backward car work? And I, I'm just thinking about the mechanics and not really understanding it. That movie literally tells you not to think too much about it, though. Yeah, yeah. And, and rather frustratingly, the movie says, don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, the big market sequence in Valerian takes place in two dimensions simultaneously. And Valerian has to have one of his hands in one dimension while the rest of his body is in another. So he's actually in two locations at the same time. And the way they use visuals alone mm -hmm. to communicate where you are, where the characters are in relation to one another, and what they're doing is so bloody effective that they don't have to use any exposition to explain how this works. We get a little exposition from that guy in the wild turban, the, the host mm -hmm. character who's yeah. taking all of the human uh, tourists into big market about how it's in another dimension and you have to wear these special goggles to see the other dimension. But it's not like the characters gathering around a table to say, this is how this works and it's in another dimension and you have to wear these and this, like they don't need to explain it all. Yeah. They just show yeah, it. It's an easy and concept. It is, it's, it's almost balletic in how easy it is to communicate all of this stuff. Yeah, I agree. It's very elegantly done and in completely visually a show don't tell sort of way. I do get a little bit confused as to what exactly is going on. We have a, dealer who is played i think by john goodman or yeah. some somebody who sounds very much like john goodman <laughs> um <laughs> and he's got the converter uh for some reason but they that they're he's trying to sell it or the 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 pearls of mule are trying to buy it valerian comes in in another dimension to basically steal it now this, he's doing this because he's been assigned to do this by the Federation, correct? Yeah. Is that why well, he's doing by this? By the government. It'll eventually come down that he was given orders specifically by the Clive Owen character. But yeah, that was right. his mission, was to retrieve this converter, and they don't know what it is, but it's that's their mission. One thing about this movie that I think 
where the visuals work against it is the visuals are so spectacular and they grab you in and demand your attention so much that I think following the mechanics of the plot yeah. is more challenging than it should be. <laughs> Considering the plot is not difficult to follow in a big picture sense, you get it. But in the little details, why people are going from scene to scene, I struggle with. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the visuals are so overwhelming. I also think that the structure of the plot is not laid out particularly well by the time we find out who the villain is you know immediately who the you don't have any suspense whatsoever totally who the bad guy is the most you know and a lot of that is casting but it's just (laughs) the plot i don't think unfolds in a way that is particularly compelling and i feel that the joy of this movie is to just be sort of swept up with it yes well, but I, I think that's uh, that's wise. I think if they had too complicated a story, then uh, maybe people might have been a little too distracted by how complex it was to, to use the Christopher Nolan. No, but I think you're saying it is complex. Like it is. Uh, yeah, I'm not asking for it to be more complex. I just think there's something about it, the way it's laid out is hard to follow. I, it's it's hard for me to put it into words, but I think it's just because... I think that's why Avatar Avatar is such a simple story and why a lot of people have problems with it because, like, oh, it's just Dances with Wolves, but in a wise way, Cameron was like, I'm going to throw so much crazy visual information at you that let me just keep the story rock solid and easy to follow, whereas I feel like Valerian is trying to do this sort of multi-layered plot mechanic you know, story and well, it's an espionage plot. Yeah, basically. that's true, and and it's just not that compelling, like you said. And it's like while you're following the movie visually, you're not picking up on all the story points that I think you're saying that they're intending you to. But it doesn't really break the movie for me. You know, I still have a good time no. watching it. But you're right. By the end, I'm like, oh, I guess there was a conspiracy. I didn't really follow that. But, you know, it didn't really pay off. But I mean, what I, what I do like and what I th- think the movie does well is the visual sort of gags that trigger the action sequences. I like when Valerian's on the run with the uh, converter in the box uh, there's a sort of fun sequence where he runs into this like little kid creature yeah. and um, there are these magnetized balls. I mean, I don't even really understand fully what's going on. He runs into a Teletubby. <laughs> it's like, it looks like a Teletubby right. almost. Well, so it, at that part of the movie, he's already secure. He's stolen the converter from yes. the John Goodman character and he has the converter in, in his hand. He can't pull it into his dimension yet because he needs Carter Delavine to pull him out. But a guard has has spotted him. Yeah. And the guard has this non-lethal weapon that, yeah, is, is like all of these weights that are sort of attracting to themselves to the only part of him that's in that dimension. Yes. And he is able to sort of hack those magnets and throw them back at the guard at some point, like send them back to their source. It's cool. It's a, and, it, and it it works on multiple levels because, you know, it that makes sense if you're dealing with this multidimensional sort of scenario and it's visually really imaginative and fun. It's the things like that that really work for me, things that I would consider to be gags. The action scenes themselves, I think, suffer a little bit from being done so clearly all on green screen. This is a very green screen movie. I think it's better than a lot of fully green screen movies. Um, When I watched the special features, 
I was kind of shocked as to just how much was green screen. I mean, even when they're on the the beach, it's just there's some sand on the ground and right. <laughs> everything else is a green screen. But I think sometimes the following this sequence, once Valerian is pulled back into the prime dimension or whatever, there's this chase with this creature, um, this alien sort of, you know, beast is ch- chasing them. They get into the this school bus transport that has yeah i love that thing that's very cool i love that sort of you know visual gag of having it be a school bus and there's sort of there's a chase that ensues and then at one point uh valerian and laureline have to jump from the school bus to their drop ship that's come to pick them up and meanwhile, this monster is sort of tearing through the school bus and then it, you know, leaps after them. And all of this is, is very, you know, fun and enjoyable, but it suffers from that, in my opinion, green screen element where I don't really feel like anything is happening. I feel like they're just jumping from one little platform to another and, you know, there's nothing terribly tangible about it. I think that's just a problem with a lot of uh, modern genre blockbuster filmmaking. Uh, that's yeah. kind of, like it started with the Phantom Menace, which was mm. like a half on green screens. And then when Star Wars went full bore digital, that was kind of the only way to make a certain kind of fantasy movie. Yeah. And a lot of the bigger movies are made in that way. So I think he was just following the visual trends, mm-hmm. trying to create this artificial world where everything took place. And the result of that is there is no gravity because nothing is real. But if you're going to do that, at least make what I'm looking at interesting. And I think Valerian does yeah. that. I think it does. Definitely. The beast is interesting looking. That school bus transport is really cool looking. The clearly French uh, warrior soldiers who, whatever they are, are, are dressed in an interesting mm-hmm. way. There's a lot yeah. of things being communicated through little bits of design that I feel like other blockbusters don't necessarily do. Mm-hmm. Or they do it so efficiently that it becomes a little bit generic. There's nothing yeah. generic about Valerian. It actually is in- very unique. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, a trait of French and European sci-fi. And this is one of the things I love about them. But American sci-fi and Christopher Nolan, even though he's British, is a perfect example of this where they really try to think of logical reasons for yeah. having these things. Like, why do we have this device or whatever? What is the logical reason? But the French like to be like, what if we could have cigarettes that were like mechanical yeah, and or, glow in the dark, whatever. <laughs> yeah. An example that I always use is in alien resurrection, which is directed by um, Jean-Pierre Jeunet of Not delicatessen yeah. and city of lost children fame. The, the character played by Dan Hedaya. Like, first of all, you cast Dan Hedaya in your movie as like a general weird. Okay. But he's, he has drinks this whiskey that comes in a cube and the cube falls into the glass and this little device then melts the cube of whiskey like like a crack torch or something. And it's like that is completely French sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only the French would come up with this whimsical and silly sci-fi conceit just to have somebody drink a glass of whiskey. Yeah, honestly, I, I had just recently watched Barbarella and this has more you know, in common with that than 2001 or Star Wars. I feel like the visuals link to that and maybe, you know, Flash Gordon from the 80s. It's all just this, you know, wild, just make it happen because it looks cool and I'm all for it. I think that's what, 
Valerian doesn't attempt to be anything else. It it just is what it is. And it's like, look, this is going to be a, a fun, wild, animated ride. And none of it's all going to make sense. But, it, you know, it like you guys said, it, it delivers on its promise. So we we move on. We we get sort of more set up with our uh, Federation characters, which I feel is sort of the least interesting aspect of this movie. There's a character played by Sam Spruill, who's an actor I'm not familiar with. Yeah, and there's a moment where he turns around and we're supposed to be like, ooh, him. Like, isn't that? Yeah. I feel like the, the movie was almost setting up that like it was going to be somebody super famous. And when he turned around, I was pretty disappointed. I'm like, I don't even know this guy. <laughs> we basically we basically have two military leaders that we follow. One is Sam Spruill. He ends up being a, a good guy. And then there is Clive Owen, who is very clearly the villain of the film. And you recognize it right away because he's Clive Owen. There's also a Herbie Hancock. Yes. There's also Herbie Hancock. But he's on Earth or something, right? Or I don't know where he is. But he he's never there physically. He's all he's always on a screen or something. Right? Well, he, he's there physically in one scene when one Rihanna scene. turns into him. But uh, right. right. <laughs> right. But he's the top dog, though. Right. Like Herbie Hancock is is like emperor or top. Like I took it as he's the, the you know, president or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Then Clive Owen is under him yeah. and then Sam Spruill is under right. him because mm-hmm. Clive Owen is commander. Sam Spruill is a general, right. I believe. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's nothing that you get. You get the sort of hierarchy of it. But I do feel that this is the least interesting aspect of the movie. I understand the movie needs villains and thematically it all works. I don't really have a problem with it in terms of how it fits into everything. And But it's definitely not – whenever we cut to them, I'm sort of yeah. – it's when I'm least interested in them. Again, but my, my Star Trek love and heart that they're using the word federation is, is a big part uh-huh. of it, which lets me understand it right away. Maybe that's just like Star Trek shorthand. The shorthand of it works. Yeah, totally, totally. It totally works as shorthand. Definitely. So yeah, we, we understand. I've I've uh, seen a lot of science fiction movies and played science fiction video games where uh, there's various species where they all have like their own unique aesthetic. And Earth always tends to be A, dressed in blue, and B, like their one power is either diplomacy or being really militant. And so this is just... All of the humans we see in this movie work for this military organization, and they're going to have a very militant mindset. Yeah, uh, it's it's that uh, what's the name of the actual trope? Like the the planet of hats. Uh huh. So uh, where every species has their own singular personality trait, so you know where you stand. Right. You meet a Klingon, you know how a Klingon is going to act. It's not like, oh, I'm, yeah. I met a Klingon from this one of a thousand Klingon right. countries and they all behave differently and they all have their own unique cultures. That's too complicated. You can't write that in science fiction. Yeah. Uh, so Valerian skips to the easy thing by having everybody of a single species being interested in one thing. And again, when you have this big sprawling world, that's an easy way to... Uh, to communicate where we are in a story. So like when we see the dog and daggies, we know what they're all up to. When we see the mule, we know what they're all up to. Well, I forgot the name of the species with the widely spaced eyeballs and the feast sequence. We all know that they have like the one thing and that's all we need. Right. So when we see Clive Owen and these human characters, I kind of appreciate that there's less nuance than there would be otherwise because it's such a, a weird world with so many different species. We need to know where the humans are and how they're going to interact right away. Is Clive Owen the villain? Yes, because he's Clive Owen. Right. <laughs> yeah. If, if JT Walsh were alive, they would have cast him. Uh, it's, you know, that 
that that doesn't bother me at all. That that simplicity doesn't bother me. No, no, it doesn't bother me at all. And I think that your point is well made that by by reducing these things to very simple sort of archetypes or whatever, we understand them. My problem is that the film tries to play it like it's a mystery. You know, like, I just don't bother me with this, you know, just get right to it. Like, I don't, there's no suspense in learning that uh, Clive Owen is behind this thing the whole time because we immediately assume yeah. that. So, you know, I, it's just that the way it's laid out, it's, I feel like they tried to structure it as if it's like, ooh, we're uncovering the mystery of this. I mean, the characters are sort of figuring it out. But I feel like even right away, we get a sort of exchange between Valerian is almost immediately suspicious of Clive Owen's motivations and stuff. He's he's immediately sort of questioning it. Um, when when the mule finally break in, um, we get our setup of the of Alpha, the city of a thousand planets. And again, like the intro, I feel like this is pretty well done. There, um, Valerian and Laureline have a spaceship that I believe is called uh, Alex. Uh, or the computer is called. Right, they're constantly talking to her. Yeah, yeah. Alex it sort of does a, a um, expository rundown of this. City. I love the part where they they actually ask. He's like, "Would you want to know more?" And it's basically like, "Does can the audience handle a little bit more exposition?" He's like, "No." And <laughs> yeah. He's like, "That's it. That's it." <laughs> so we, you know, we we see these things. They they basically do just enough to set up um, parts of the Alpha Station that we're going to come in contact with it's pretty elegantly done um then so we get this scene where the uh the federation are uh having some sort of meeting or whatever and the mule pearls attack and they attack with these weapons that again you know tying into this theme of you know we're these non-lethal types of weaponry they sort of shoot everybody with this um, ejaculatory goo, <laughs> this blue ejaculate. And so uh, I believe uh, Valerian is encased in goo. And this this little thing comes out of his breather that digs the, him out of the goo, which I felt was a very like Batman shark yeah. repellent like thing. Like a lot of times characters in this movie have gadgets that are the just the right gadget to get them out of the thing that they're in. <laughs> you know, like, wow, that's convenient yeah. that your breather had this gadget built into it. I don't have a problem with that. It's fun, but it is definitely a bat shark repellent moment. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the pearls attack non-lethally. And so, I mean, right away, that's a giveaway mm -hmm. that they're not the villains. So I wonder who the villains are. Yeah, The plot is set up so hard that I I, th I was waiting for, you know, a turn for Clive Owen to be the good guy because I'm um, like, they, they, they're broadcasting it so hard that like, that can't just be it. And I was almost disappointed right. by the end that there wasn't another like twist to the whole thing because, you know, you're, you're following the expectations and then it just goes exactly where you think it's going. Yeah. Also in this uh, sequence, we're introduced to the dog and daggies oh, yeah. who are sort of comedic a comedic trio who are purveyors of information. Now, the question I raise to you are: Are they anti-Semitic? Are these anti-Semitic caricatures? I mean, they're they're no more or less anti-Semitic than the Ferengi on Star Trek. Uh, right. There's, I, I'm making a lot of Star Trek comparisons just because this reminds me of Star Trek in a lot of ways. The the way they're actually thinking out the mechanics of the world they live in is a very mm -hmm. Star Trek thing. 
Yeah. Like uh, in, in Star Wars, we don't know how a spaceship runs. We never see the engine. We don't care. Just things to get you to the next planet. The dog and daggies are fast talking merchants. And yeah. the, I think they, that plays just fine. Uh, one of them is with big by, noses. Uh, hey, the French have big noses too. French have big noses. That's they have true, aardvark yeah. mouth. They don't have big noses. They have like elephant mouth yes, snout yes. thing. Yeah. And, and also little bat wings. Uh, they're kind of an unusual fun design. I think I like the voices they chose for them, that they all have mm-hmm. kind of similar voices, but they're played by different actors. One of those played by uh, one of the uh, booking agents at the American Cinematheque here in L.A. Oh, really? Yeah, Grant Moninger plays one oh, of Oh, Grant? I, oh, I know him. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize he was one of them. Yeah, he wow. plays one of the Dog and Daggies because he's also a voice actor. I did not uh, know that. So yeah, I, I, I liked the characters. I, also, I appreciate the design and where they come in because they're offering something that this film is in no short supply of, and that's a little bit of visual yeah. variety. We're not yeah. just sort of wandering around these hallways, uh, having these boring meetings with the humans. It's just another reminder that Alpha is this very diverse, weird place where you're going to run into anybody. Yeah. The timing is a little odd. They say, oh, look, there's dog and daggies. They're going to give me exactly what I need. They yes. just happen to be six feet away right when I need yeah. them. That happens a few times in this movie. It happens later in the movie, too, that something is conveniently located right next to something else, and it doesn't really make sense that these two things would be located next to each other. Yeah, and these three goofballs can just stroll into a secure area or whatever. They're just wherever they need right. to be. It's not like they have magical powers. Do they have clearance Exactly. For like, if anything, they should have had some kind of, like, you know, teleportation thing where they just know and they can just hop in and out. But it's interesting to where, you know, you're saying, oh, is this, you know, almost racist? I feel like so, a lot of times people think they can get away with racist trope or, you know, stereotypes if it's an alien, like, you know, Jar Jar, people had issues with. And so you definitely have to be. The Nemoidians. Yes, you have to be careful with that. Watto. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, <laughs> Watto is sort of a proto-dog. Yeah, exactly. But like, you know, I can forgive it, but I understand where people might have issues. And the dog and daggies could have gone so much more horribly wrong. Like that. I think definitely. that he gets yes. away with it because I was when I first saw them, I was like, oh, no, here comes the annoying comic relief. This is going to be a slog. This is going to be horrible. They were fine. Yeah, they don't they don't ever rise to Jar Jar or Watto mm-hmm. level in any way. I'm just bringing it up as a point of conversation. Yeah. It doesn't offend me at all. I've noticed though that, uh, and this is a big part of uh, James Cameron movies like Avatar. We can make that comparison. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of these like racist stereotypes and especially like colonialist mm-hmm. thriller elements are still alive today in science fiction. Yeah, uh, I, I saw a film called Traitor Horn from the 1930s recently. And it's really similar to Aliens in Uh that it's about these colonialist military thinkers uh, who are just sort of charging into a place and killing the monsters that live there. In a previous generation, those characters would just be native people and they would be treated like this like invading army or some sort of antagonistic force. And we've tried to take the curse off of this boring old trope, this racist trope, by replacing uh, a race of people with like space aliens. And, yeah, yeah. But the trope is still kind of hanging in the air there. And uh-huh. we're actually taking a lot of these old colonialist messages from these science fiction stories. What I appreciate about Valerian is I think it's trying to invert that. It's almost an anti-avatar because it is an anti-colonialist movie. It's about how the warmongers and the colonialists are the ones who are in the wrong. 
Well, Avatar is the same. Avatar is definitely on the side of the Navi. I mean, I, I suppose, but that's a little bit more like white man goes native. So that's, you know, right. I, I when, when it came out, people it. compared it to Dances with Wolves. But I wouldn't say it's 100 yeah, it, percent. It's it's not quite the same, but it's still like this trope that's hanging yes. in the air over something like Avatar. Valerian is deliberately trying to be anti-colonialist. Right. Which right. I, I appreciate. It's not doing the noble savage trope the way Avatar right. is. It's yeah, coming yeah, at it from yeah. a completely mm-hmm. different angle. Right. Anyway, so after this, we get this chase through these different sectors, which are in essentially their own worlds. Um, it's a fun sequence. I remember it was really highlighted in the trailers where we have Valerian um, in a s- cool spacesuit. At this point, Valerian and Laureline are wearing these sort of silvery, brushed metal-looking spacesuits, which I really like. It's a pretty fun sequence where Laureline is sort of trying to direct Valerian. He's basically busting through walls and stuff. Yeah. Imagine how much it would have, how much fun it would have been if I liked the character of Valerian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they should have done more with that sort of platform gun, you know, like that. He just busts that out, you know, where he can actually like create a little platform yeah. that he hops on. Yes. And I feel like it's just in this one sequence. And I was like ready for that. Oh, this is going to be his thing. The entire movie He's going to platform up. Maybe it was too much video game yeah. to, to do. But that definitely seems like, you know, oh, we're going to make the Avatar. You know, this is in the wake of Avatar. Here's going to be the big 3D scene where you follow him through all these worlds. And it's going to be mind blowing. And it's a good scene. But yeah. Again, it's like in that animated way. And um, I almost wanted to like pause every little scene that happened because you, yeah. I want to spend a little bit more time in all those worlds. Like he goes, bam, <laughs> I'm into this thing. And then next thing you know, it's a, it's another thing. And it's a lot of fun, but um, could have been even more. I think that if you're going to be a person who enjoys this kind of movie in this day and age, we might have to let go of the too much like a video game thing yeah. just because... Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel it and I agree with it, but I think that's just the way these things are designed now. Right. Um, yeah. And in many cases, they are designed by people who have worked on video games. That's not a good or bad thing. It's just the reality of these. I mean, of platforming things. is literally like a type, a genre of video games. So I was like, you know, I don't know how exciting that would have been to watch over and over again. Right. You know, I think. Th- the trick is to walk the line where you're not doing too much of that stuff where it becomes just completely, that's all you can think of as a video game. Right. Um, I think this walks the line pretty well, especially at the point where he is, uh, he busts, she gives him the wrong uh, number because it's upside down in her Mm -hmm. little holographic readout. And he ends up blasting out into space. Um, One thing I really sort of like about this sequence is She's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Give me the wrong number. He's like, no, it's okay. We all make mistakes. Yeah, <laughs> As he's like plummeting funny. through space. I'm like, oh, his reaction to that was very, uh, can, you know, was very nice. He didn't get too yeah. mad at her about it. Th- this was the sequence when I was in the theater. I kind of reached over and grabbed my companion's arm and just squeezed it really hard just because it, it was, I mean, I, I hate to fall back on like, crit words but it was dazzling mm-hmm. um I, the, the phrase you'll hear in reviews all the time is visually stunning yeah i hate that phrase i try not to use it but this was one of those few times where i actually was kind of stunned by the visuals uh it was clear enough i could tell what was going on in each individual shot 
yeah. that it didn't sort of uh, tip into chaos the way so many blockbusters do now. Yeah. Uh, I, I could say that about the whole movie in general, actually, is something about the editing, and I'll get back to that. But yeah, just sort of him running through all these different environments, and one he's uh, he's just in a tube, and one he's underwater, and one he's going through these like, glowing toadstool things, uh, and it just happens so quickly. Each one is unique, and even in those little brief moments, you get a good sense as to uh, the nature of the environment yeah. and like what it might be doing there on Alpha, what kind of species might be living in there. Yeah. It is just this sort of little mini travelogue that adds so much to the texture of the world uh, while being an action sequence to boot. So I, I, I love that sequence. I love the big market sequence. Those are my two favorite bits in the movie, actually. I think the way it sort of maintain it avoids that trap of becoming just, you know, visual goo, goo is because it's always sort of focused on Valerian. He's sort of always, you know, if he if if he's not center screen like a first person video game, he's always in the frame. You're always kind of paying attention to him and where he is in relation to all of these environments he's going through. And I think that's why it works so well. There's two really good sequences here that are sandwiching a not so great sequence. And the not so great sequence I feel is the spaceship chase. Because at this point, Alex, if we want to call the spaceship Alex, we're in Alex and we're chasing after the um, mule uh, ship where they have Clive Owen and at this point, it does. I do think it just looks like straight up video game. It doesn't. Well, there's really look- one idea where the ship actually like separates into small, like a thousand smaller ships that look the same. I thought that idea kind of almost saved that entire sequence because I, I thought that was really cool. Right. Like uh, once he gets on the sky jet, then it's fun again. You know, I mean, it's just this sort of middle segment where I'm kind of just like, "Ah, I'm not really paying attention. And and unfortunately, I don't really think the design of the Alex ship is particularly memorable. It just kind of looks like a flying saucer with some added elements. I feel that way about the Millennium Falcon. It's just a flying saucer. Ah, the Millennium Falcon has got, yeah, but the Millennium Falcon has the, the, uh, yeah, 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 it has, it has, it's just a flying saucer. It's got personality up the wazoo. Come on. (laughs) Right, but it's- It has personality because of who, who flies it, not because of the ship. Sure, but I mean, it also has this, uh, what do you call it, non-symmetrical element to it, which, whereas like Mm. this ship is just symmetrical and you know i think that it makes it hard to i can't even really picture this ship in my mind when i think about this movie but i do like the sky jets i think they're fun and once that happens you know i'm back in it at that point okay all right i don't i don't mean to give you crap for your love of no no (laughs) give me all the crap you want you know this is podcasting we're not all here to agree (laughs) that'd be boring hey look you can get personal if you want (laughs) You have awful taste in clothes. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. When, I have awful when you, taste. When you hit high notes, your voice is reedy. And uh, no, um, I don't. Yeah, I don't really feel that way. I'm. I'm. I'm just being a jerk now. It, no, look, my taste is the, the very existence of this podcast calls into my calls into question my <laughs> taste with every episode. I, I'd like to comment very briefly on uh, just the editing of Valerian, and I think that's a, a big reason why I think so much so much of it works so well for me is it actually bothers to look at stuff. Mm-hmm. You're talking about how this this chase sequence was really fast and video gamey, but what it has that a lot of films don't is clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I really value visual clarity, like a sense of actual 
spatial continuity within a scene basic filmmaking stuff yeah anti-michael uh, bay for sure like yeah exactly the opposite of michael bay i feel like so many effects-based blockbusters rely a little bit too heavily on how how to look really cool and how cool the characters are when they're presented with something that's really uh, awe-striking. So when a, a character, and the, the example I used, I thought of right after I saw this movie was uh, there in the movie Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. there's a bit where um, the main character has this like facial plate that just sort of appears over his face. Yeah. like And it just sort of like blinks into existence, like it draws really quickly. And of course for him, this is just a commonplace item. He uses it every day. It's a piece of clothing. He wouldn't think that was really cool looking. Mm-hmm. But in the audience, that's cool for us. We've never seen anything like that. And the filmmakers seem to have forgotten that element, that this is something that we want to look at for at least a moment before yeah. we skip on to the next thing. And I feel like Valerian gives us those moments. It gives us like maybe yeah. a split second longer to look at this dazzling world that we've been put in. Yeah. For Valerian, a lot of this stuff is really commonplace, but also a lot of this stuff is really weird for him. He goes into Alpha and it's such a large place that he gets to stop and look and feel a little bit of excitement being there. And as such, the audience gets to feel excited about being there. There is the bit where he like pushes a button on his neck and the helmet appears over his head and the camera stays on him while it sort of like goes up the back of his head. He turns around and we see it close around his head. Right. And we get a good sense of the mechanic of that thing and how cool it looks and how a big change has happened to his suit. He's going to do something really exciting now. Yeah. It doesn't just appear. It's really interesting that you say that because I've, I've read about um, how editors have to compensate for some something in 3D there that they have to linger on shots longer because not in in addition to orienting yourself you have to orient yourself in 3D space and so that editing in 3D movies has to be totally rethought and shots have to linger because you have to give the audience a little bit more leeway and I'm curious if they knew that going forward because I think this was still when 3D was big and this was going to be like, you know, post-Avatar. Yeah, it was definitely sold as a 3D experience. Yeah, so sure. I wonder if that that little, you were just saying how like every shot is like lingered a little bit longer. I wonder if that was also an influence on their decision to to let to let it linger. I sure hope so, because it, it even in, if it's not in 3D, that's mm-hmm. very, very slightly slowed pace. Like they're going at like 94% ordinary speed gives me a middle-aged man. Maybe I'm just slowing down. Uh, at least enough time to take in the information that they're dumping on me. Mm -hmm. I watch like a big old fight scene and at the end of a Captain America movie and stuff is happening so quickly, I can't get excited. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, I'll just wait here until the fight's over and see who won. Right. And of course, course the fight lasts for 30 (laughs) minutes. So I'm just sitting there waiting for the fight to be over so I can see who wins. I love that. Not really concerned with the actual like strikes and, you know, changing of hands of power throughout the fight scene. Valerian encourages me not to tune out. It encourages me to keep on watching and see whatever the next exciting visual thing is going to be. And the next exciting visual thing we get is basically this character named Bob the Fisherman or something. Um, <laughs> a very strange, oh, weird, yeah. uh, f- very French, kooky French character. Uh, wasn't there a, a Primus song about that guy? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Bob the Fisherman uh, basically 
Laureline has to go hunting for Valerian now. This movie operates, there's sort of two sequences where she's got to go get, rescue Valerian and then later he's got to rescue her. So it's it's evenly weighted in that way, which mm-hmm. is kind of nice. So she's got to go find Valerian and she's got to do it. <laughs> she's got, the, what she has to do is go underwater uh, in Bob the Fisherman's uh, submarine and retrieve a magical jellyfish. Uh, <laughs> and I'm saying this with sarcasm in my voice, but I love this idea. Yeah. <laughs> like, I actually think this is awesome. Um, she's got to retrieve this magic psychic jellyfish that lives underwater. And then she's got to wear it so that she can figure out how he is. I don't understand how this works because I don't know how the jellyfish knows where he is. The jellyfish seems to just have access to her brain because we've got a lot of visuals. I mean, first of all, there's all this sort of underwater sort of chasey stuff with big underwater sea creatures, which is reminiscent of Phantom Menace, but I think done better. I mean, Way it's better. been been a long time since Phantom Menace at the point this point, so it's not a fair comparison, but I do like this stuff better. But yeah, the, I'm not exactly sure why the jellyfish knows where Valerian is. They explain that the jellyfish is like psychic, like it's a psychic creature. Right. That can kind of reach its mind out into this vast space of alpha and figure stuff out. Right. And so she she has to, in order to bond with this jellyfish, and this might be something that turns off American audiences because this is such a weird <laughs> idea. She has to stick its her head up its ass. Yes. Yeah. Like, she says, I have to put my head in its mouth. And the dog and daggy say, no, it's not its mouth. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah. uh, so she has to stick her head up a jellyfish, a psychic jellyfish butt to get a psychic idea as to where Valerian might be because Alpha is so vast and she figures it out. Sorry, I, I remember they were talking about how the jellyfish feeds on, like, her memories. So I got the sense that it's basically, it can just feel and get everybody's memories in alpha and that you know if she thought of valerian it could pinpoint valerian's memories and so basically she sees what he saw at the last minute when he crashed right yeah see Does no that look, make sense look don't get me wrong <laughs> i mean you're overthinking this thing she's just putting her head up i do think we're out. slightly i do think we're overthinking it a little bit uh but Look, I'm I I get the concept that this is a psychic jellyfish that can right. find out the answer to this question, but it's strange in that when she puts it on, it doesn't communicate to us that this thing is understanding everything that's going on. It's just giving us flashes of her memories. They told her to think of Valerian in order for it to find okay. him. So I think sure. that's what was happening. And then the stakes of oh keep it on for only one minute it was a cool right. sequence though like i no i it. love it i actually love it it's just i would stick my head up a jellyfish's ass after that <laughs> after seeing that like it looked cool there there are a whole host of sea creatures that i would gladly put my head in to gain psychic <laughs> powers well it's a fun sequence and i also appreciate that Laureline is the one who gets to do it by herself we get a sense through these sort of paired rescue missions that they are equals they're both yeah. equally resourceful, and I'm frustrated that she doesn't have the same rank that he does, that she's her, her, yeah. his in, like, soldierly inferior, even though she's clearly as capable as he is. And not on the marquee. Uh, yeah. And, and, and her name isn't on the marquee. But I, I appreciate that, at least in the movie, they're treated as people who are not only equally resourceful, but they both get the exciting rescue mission yes. portion of the movie. 
Right. And I'm more happy when I'm with Laureline, honestly. Like this whole segment mm. of the movie, I'm enjoying more than the one that follows. My friend had commented that like he hated Dane DeHaan's character so much that when she started to like him, he started to not like her because he was like, <laughs> why are you falling for this douche? He's terrible. And and I felt the same way watching it. You're just like, what? No, like he's a jerk. Don't, just you're better than that. He's not actually a jerk to her. He's just, there's something off. He's lame. But anyway, she catches up with him in this sort of purpley, glittery chasm, which I really think is visually cool. And there are these butterfly creatures that are sort of floating in the air. And he's, you know, not paying full attention to her. And he tells her not to interact with the butterflies. But they're so pretty that she does. And these butterflies turn out to actually be lures, fishing lures, that are um, being thrown out by these cannibal aliens that we'll we'll come to know better later. And this is how Laureline is now abducted. And now we're into the uh, Valerian needing to rescue Laureline segment. And the uh, the cannibal aliens live in a, a really protected part of Alpha. They live in this cave. And this is another uh, example of a little bit too convenient placing, but it turns out the thing that Valerian needs to infiltrate happens to have a literal doorway right next to the doorway yes. of their protected area. <laughs> yes. So, so he goes to what is essentially the red light district and uh, tries to find a, a shape-shifting alien, which I guess are really popular in the red light district. Yes. And this is where we get to meet Bubble. Right. I do have to question the city planners of the th- of Alpha that they would put the red light district right next to the cannibal district. <laughs> <laughs> Don't wander into the wrong door. That seems like poor city planning. But yes, so exactly. We go to this conveniently located red light district, which is, you know, fun and very French. This is something we see a lot in sci-fi, so I'm not going to give the movie too much credit here for originality. This is kind of something that shows up in almost every sci-fi movie these days, I feel like. But it's done well, it's fun, it's colorful, and we meet Ethan Hawke's character, and Ethan Hawke is turned up the ham higher than I've ever yeah. seen him turn up the ham. I mean, this is the hammiest Hawk we've ever gotten. I, I think he's doing a Bono impression, you know, and Bono, oh, when he's yeah. drunk and like, you know, during the Pop Mart tour where he just lost his mind, I feel like right. that's what he's doing. <laughs> I didn't think of that, but you're right. He's got the the cowboy hat and the glasses. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's he's super fun to watch. I, I'm a fan of Ethan Hawke in general. This does seem a little out of his wheelhouse, mm-hmm. maybe. But, you know, he's having a good time, so I'm having a good time. So, yeah, we go into his, his club, the uh, unimaginatively named Glam Club, where I guess we get our Glamopod as played by Rihanna. We meet her in this dance sequence in which she is dancing in a murderer's row of sexy outfits. We get the sexy nurse. We get the sexy schoolgirl. We get the sexy French maid. Uh, yeah. French maid. And they are very sexy outfits. Rihanna is a very sexy uh, woman. The dance, she's you know doing a sort of strip club's pole dance. And it's all good. It's all sexy. As far as sex appeal goes, she's delivering. As far as acting goes, <laughs> once the dance stops, uh... 
you know what? It's just another surreal element in this movie that we, uh-huh. we're in this bizarre world and all of a sudden we have a pop star playing one of the roles. Yeah. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been any weirder if that had actually been Bono uh, right. playing the Ethan <laughs> Hawke role. And, and that she's not really acting very well no. is weirdly in keeping with like Dane DeHaan's bonkers yeah. performance. And in a weird way, I think they play off of each other kind of well. I think uh, mm-hmm. Dane DeHaan has more chemistry with Rihanna than he does with Cara Delevingne. I think because he's not trying to get into her pants, you know, like I feel like he's actually yeah. wants something from her. So he's relating to her in a different way. Whereas the, yeah. You know, yeah. the rapport with, with Cara doesn't work. and But it didn't bother me. Like, yeah, it was Rihanna. I don't care. By this point in, my, in the movie, my brain is scrambled and adjusted to, to what... Luc Besson wants, and so I'm I'm in. And also, it's when he's talking to Rihanna that he finally gets to start, like, confiding in her as to, like, his true feelings about Laureline, and we actually yeah. get to see that he has decent thoughts in yeah. his head, which we haven't really seen explicitly yeah. uh, expressed until this point. Yeah, character-wise, I think for him, it's it works well. I find her acting to be subpar yes and especially later on we get this scene where we're supposed to be like crying weeping because this character we've just been introduced to dies a few scenes later really pointlessly yeah and 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 her acting in that scene is ruinous to the scene Mm. i don't think she's ruining the movie here i think she's not pulling it off really but she's fine you know it's like you said chris it's rihanna we're getting a pop star here you know i've seen pop stars acquit themselves better in movies i've seen them acquit themselves worse in movies i guess she's about average for a pop star i'm not crazy about bubble in cg form and i think that her acting even gets worse once she's doing voiceover she just you can feel the recording booth that she's in (laughs) you know i can tell what kind of headphones she's wearing i just picture her being like uh all right three days on set was enough can i just do the rest in via in adr and she just takes (laughs) off and then phones it in on her iphone or in her home studio and and it is kind of a repeat where like you know she gloms onto him whereas like you know the jellyfish it, it is almost kind of the right. same thing is happening to him and yeah. but not quite as cool so yeah i'm not a huge fan of the the bubble i, I think the concept is cool that he could the concept, change yeah. into something else but it is a little bit uh too similar to the other thing no i think the concept is uh, is actually clever because he needs her to basically be a disguise where right. he can disguise himself as one of these cannibal aliens but yeah unfortunately you know, once she's on him, then he becomes these. I mean, at one point he becomes uh, Ethan Hawke, and, right. and you know, he, he morphs into different characters or whatever. Once, once that happens, it's fine. I think it's a totally okay concept. It's just the CG character of her is is not very good in my opinion and it's too bad because she's such a crucial character and very similar to the jellyfish it's like a see-through blue and so i'm like why gelatinous thing yeah why not change it completely so that it's that it's it's more different anyway (laughs) i I know i'm the one to leap to defense but no it's bad design (laughs) it's it it, this kind of like blobby jellyfish that doesn't move in an interesting sort of way it's yeah uh, they didn't put a lot of creativity into that and i understand they have to give a space alien that looks like it could be anything so it does have to be like that's yeah. why they chose it to be kind of liquidy and gelatinous sure. looking of but of course yeah there are more creative ways to do that plus this is something i saw 
mark down on your tally another Star Trek reference on uh, uh, the show Deep Space Nine. There's a character who's a, a shape changer in that show. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we see him in his natural state, he's just like this amber liquid. So uh, it, it just sort of said, oh, well, it's like the amber liquid I've seen on Deep Space Nine 20 years earlier, but not as interesting. And also it's wearing lipstick. So it looks like Ms. Pac-Man. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just not, <laughs> it, it, it's not a good design. It did give us the chance to see, you know, the cannibal aliens actually fight, you know, when he's a cannibal alien. I enjoyed the mechanics of like, oh, seeing this gangly alien have to fight another gangly alien. And I thought that was actually more interesting than seeing Dane DeHaan in human form fight it. You know, you're just like, eh, whatever. But when the aliens were fighting, that was interesting to me. Well, and let's get to that sequence because it's right out of like a 1930s serial in a way, because mm-hmm. this, the seg, you know, what's being set up here is Laureline has been captured by these cannibal aliens and they're basically grooming her to be eaten. But the way the cannibal aliens eat people is kind of, through fashion or something because Laureline is given this this wide brimmed white hat that looks like something you know you'd see on a vogue runway but as she's sort of being led up in this procession to the the leader of the cannibal tribe she's gonna have her head eaten off through the hat so i'm again i'm gonna bring it up cannibal aliens are they offensive whitney (laughs) (laughs) well again uh this this is another another thing where uh seeing leak down through these old colonialist action films from the 1930s at least they like they don't have like bones through their noses or anything like that they're not like going full full bore racist imagery yeah um we're getting a little close though what i'm more concerned with is we're in this universe where there's like hundreds of sentient species living together on the same planet but some of these species eat others. Like, what? What's uh-huh. the ethic of allowing this society to right. live on Alpha when you know they're going to start eating other Noah's people? Ark? You know, I mean, yeah. do you ask the yeah. same question? Yeah. But so, are they cannibals? Because it's it seems like they're just bringing any kind of food to them. I mean, like you know. Yeah, maybe they're not technically cannibals because they're not eating each other. Yeah, they're exactly. Eating. I thought they were just eating. They were just bored. Like the king wanted to eat uh, the freshest, rarest food that he could get. And yeah. Kara, Kara's head and eyebrows are probably the coolest thing. So <laughs> I was like, why don't, you, why don't I eat that? Those eyebrows are a feast unto themselves. Yes, it's true. Stunning. Yeah. And dazzling. You just want to curl up inside of them and make a home. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, we don't need to know too much about the species, I guess. It's just basically a setup for a cute action sequence. But yeah, it's not not terribly well explained. But uh, Valerian arrives just in time, and, but as disguised as one of these creatures. And um, as Chris mentioned, they have this sort of, sort of sword fight scene. I have to say at this point, as diverting as this sequence is i'm kind of at this point getting a little tired of tired of things like i want the plot to move along this feels like one more kind of diversion i don't know if the movie really needed this no i i agree this is like when when they finally get to the plot it's going to take a little bit more to get the 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 audience involved and there's some certain parts where I mean, they, they can't just be introducing us to new dazzling things throughout the entire movie. At some point, we have to just sort of get like, back to like business. You said, like, kind of s- settle in. And yes. Like, the only, the last interesting thing we get, and uh, the last interesting notion we get is we know that Clive Owen is up to something shady. 
And we know he's out to prove it because all of a sudden he has, for the first time in this movie, lethal weapons. Yeah. Uh, in the form of these like weird looking uh, Cylon robot. Yeah, things. they're cool. Yes. Yeah, and they're really cool looking. But yeah, they're they're out to actually kill. So we know something is up and we're getting closer and closer to finding out what is in this like blank spot on Alpha's map. And of course, the Pearls of Mule are hanging out there. Yeah. And uh, we can kind of just take a, a hop, skip, and a jump forward to the actual exposition dump that explains the plot. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's a few gears that do have to turn in this movie. So this is the point where we put put away some of the fanciful rescue stuff and just turn the gears for a few minutes while we get to Sebastian. The in, in in the defense of that scene, I feel like I was happy that when they're all charging each other and you're expecting another 15 minute scene of them just, you know, slaughtering aliens. It ends quickly with them just jumping and escaping. So at, yes. at, at the very least that scene is not as long as I was dreading. <laughs> at no, one it's point not where belabored. You're like, yeah. Yeah. I, I was very happy to see it over and done with, with them escaping. Um, but yeah, these movies just, just tend to wear down on you. And if it's like, it's the problem with one upping, you know, every single thing you're like, well, all right, I've seen enough aliens doing this. And, you know, you you kind of get spoiled in the sense that it's like Fast and Furious. If they're not, you know, being chased by a submarine through the Antarctica, then like I'm bored, you know, and it's it's its own worst enemy in that sense. This movie is two hours and 14 minutes long with credits. And I think you could have trimmed 10 minutes out of it here is yeah. basically what I'm yeah. saying. Sure. I just feel it slowing down. Mm -hmm. But we do lead up to the climax. Before that, we get Bubble dying. I'm not exactly sure. They they fall down a chute or something, and she just dies. You, you can right? see the aliens like stabbing her on the way down, oh, okay. and then. But yeah, I think yeah. it might have just been a whole thing where like, oh, we can't get Rihanna anymore. Like, yeah, just have her die, and you know. Yeah. So they find the secret uh, sector or wherever where the mule are. This is when we basically learn that Valerian has the princess's spirit in him. And, you know, her emperor father is there and he explains about the peaceful mule and we get the details on the apocalypse in the beginning that it was this battle that was going on above the planet. And the person in charge of the battle was, you'll never guess, Clive Owen. Oh, <gasps> no, not some new character of the five that we've <laughs> been introduced to. Yes, it's Clive Owen. And he's been told by one of his men that the the life forms below are intelligent and sentient, but he's like, no, 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 they're savages. Um, I want to win this fight, so we're going to kill him. It's actually pretty impactful in, in an emotional sense. It's definitely not a twist, but you do feel a sense of indignation, which is, yeah. you know, at least effective. In and it's all about deal. the economy as opposed to even anything else. And so I feel like that was a... They were trying to bring it all home to current events. Yeah. Well, and, and he stands in contrast to our lead characters who have never behaved in sort of a, a like they, they've said petty things in a joking way, but they've yeah. never actually displayed any kind of like uh, pettiness or greed or violence themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here we have a character who is very petty and is trying to cover up his crimes and is very greedy and is very violent yeah, uh, and all of so we get to see it all kind of encapsulated. It's it's a simple kind of Saturday morning cartoon message, right? Being violent and greedy is bad. Yeah, but uh, that's not a message we get from a lot of action movies. Uh, action movies tend to show uh, heroes and villains committing sa the same kind of violence. 
Yeah. They're just one one happens to be dressed in the right uniform and they're the morals get a little bit tricky when you see good guys and bad guys committing the same amount of murders. Valerian and Laureline don't do that. They actually have an ethic. They have an ethos. And I, yeah. I appreciate that about Valerian. For sure. Like I said, it's very simple. It's nothing terribly nuanced, but at least it's there. Yeah, and I mean, I you get that sense from the characters the whole time, like you're saying, that they're never complete, even though they're ostensibly working for this Federation, they're not really, you know, going to fall in lockstep with what, everything that they, you know, their superiors want. And, you know, we, we always like those types of characters. We don't want to see bureaucrats <laughs> following orders. We want to see, you know, people who have a bit of a rebelliousness to them, but are, are on the side of good. So yeah, and then we sort of learn how the Pearls of Mule survived. They they survived by, you know, getting in that spaceship or whatever. And when their planet was destroyed, they just miraculously didn't die. They, flo they were floating off in space and they sort of learned all about uh, the universe. And I don't know if I needed this. I could have just jumped to the conclusion that they were advanced beings and yeah, it raises more questions than answers you're like uh, waiting right it's one of those like, things where it's like i don't mind that it's there and it's kind of a nice little sequence but it's you know i don't i didn't need to know how they got here really i, I could have you know <laughs> they got there right. all sorts of people ended up there they could have ended up there you know but you know we learned that that clive owen learned of their existence and was trying to get the converter and to cover it all up. It's all a big cover up, basically. There's this sort of, I guess, thematically on point, but clunky exchange between Valerian and Laureline where, you know, she's like, well, you had this woman inside you the whole time. You know, it's there to set up that, you know, he, she can't love him because he won't trust her. There's this theme of trust that's, I guess, at the center of their you know, will they, won't they love? I don't know if it fully thematically fits in super tight. The the theme of trust isn't explored that much other than just dialogue. I feel like yeah. because the two characters aren't given a lot of uh, scenarios where they're working together and he does something that isn't entirely trustworthy, trustworthy that yeah. like might put her in danger or she feels like she's in danger... Uh, they they actually work separately a lot, and they actually work really well as a team when yeah. they work together. So right. I don't know where this I can't trust you thing comes in, except exactly. from a brief moment at the beginning where it turns out he's had sex with a lot of different women. Right. Uh, and the circumstances under which uh, he had all these affairs is never really made clear, just that he's done it a lot. Right. Uh, he keeps referring to his playlist, which is his, you know, little black his, book of names yeah, or whatever. His, his sci-fi black book. Yeah. That she has access to, by the way. I'm not exactly sure why Alex is keeping track of all of his conquests. Right. Yeah, I know. Alex, get rid of those. <laughs> d d delete. Uh, delete history. Delete history. <laughs> I guess it's just, the you know, they're trying to say that the princess alien was living in him and knows all his subconscious thoughts and knows that he's a deep down a good person, regardless of how he's behaved. Right. I mean, that's. I guess the underlying point of the whole thing is that he was chosen because he is inherently good, even though he doesn't express it the entire movie. But right. that's the payoff saying like, yes, you can mm -hmm. trust him because this alien chose him to, to be the vessel. 
out of everybody in the universe. But it's also sort of clunkily tied to this thing where she wants, Laureline wants uh, Valerian to give the converter to the the pearls of mule, but he's like, no, I can't give them right, the converter. Right, against the order. Do the right thing versus orders, yes. It's just kind of all, all this stuff is kind of crammed in this one scene, and I don't feel it's particularly elegant. It's not elegant. I do appreciate that they gave us the information as to how the Pearls of Mule made their way to Alpha, because it would have felt a little jarring otherwise. Mm. You see the planet explode, and you're like, why did... Yeah, it's like, and all of a sudden they're on Alpha? Like, that would have that would have felt like a plot hole, so I'm actually glad they sort of filled it in. It's, it's in a clunky way, but at least they gave us the information. Yeah, when, when uh, Clive Owen, I think, is just good enough an actor to sell the fact that he actually believes in these petty things and he needs to cover these things up. And right. this is about making all of the, these economic things uh, persist. And now is the time to start repairing the damage we did to the Native Americans in America. Oh, wait, shoot. I'm reading maybe too much into it. It's a French movie. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's another sort of like reparations for colonialism sort of thing. And I think uh, Valerian and Laureline are doing the right thing, even though uh, the, the actual plotting of it is handled a little bit, uh, a little bit clunkily, and and weirdly, the it becomes incredibly schmaltzy in this last moment as well, where they start talking about how we need to be full of love and compassion. When before it was this kind of rollicking adventure where we're sticking our heads inside jellyfish butts. Yeah, yeah. It's like th- there there was none of this sentimentality before. There was none of this like grand romantic stickiness mm-hmm. as part of Valerian. It all just sort of like dumps right here at the end. Yeah. And that's when she when Laureline decides that she actually is kind of in love with Valerian. Yeah. I think that might be sort of a European thing. I think European artists operate under this notion that you know we are these beings of you know deep passions and emotions and if that's underneath the surface at all times and even when we're doing other things that's really what's going on whereas americans i feel like we really need to have that hammered home that we care about things (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh good point yeah Yeah, we're more stoic like yeah we're yeah we don't care about emotions yeah Our, our culture is built more around you know conquering and conflict than it is around caring which you know to our detriment that may go to why this didn't read with american audiences so much right that that ultimately it is about uh non-lethal weapons it's about diplomacy it's about these beings shaking hands and living together it's about repairing the damage you do it's not about i mean the fact that dane dehan isn't like a charismatic hero but also he's not a hero willing to do violence is a big reason why this might have felt a little toothless Right. You look at any of like the Marvel superheroes, they do all kinds of damage. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're never seen like explicitly murdering people, but that's, you know, they do so much damage that they have to make movies about the damage that they do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they were I think there's even a TV series in production called Damage Control about the right. damage superheroes do. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and they are seen like wiping out fields of soldiers just, you know, they're either monsters or robots. So it's okay when they're monsters and robots. I just think like you were saying all all this all these plot mechanics don't pay off because we know who the villain is and what they needed was a scene, you know, like the multidimensional scene. They, if they had put that at the end and wowed us with a great action conclusion, maybe yeah. all this would have paid off and seemed worth it. But honestly, like this last whole bit is, is 
super anticlimactic for me. I mean, like the the, yeah. the last fight is nothing. They're just like you know, like Valerian there's does nothing a few to things. even really discuss. Yeah, yeah, they they fight the evil robots, which are cool design, but there's there's zero ideas. They're totally out of gas for me as far as like the action climax so once they get into all this exposition and and the character stuff i'm still waiting for like well where's that that last hooray you know action scene and and i feel like that kind of fails uh, at this part of the it's movie. so forgettable that while I was watching it last night, taking notes, yeah. I couldn't remember exactly what happened. Exactly. And then I was, I kept, I had in my, nothing mo- my notes, <laughs> I have in my notes, big pew pew climax, you know, mm-hmm. and then, but then I kept waiting for it to happen. Like, uh, like it's getting set up, but then Clive Owen triggers the kill bots and blah, blah, blah. And it eventually, you know, there's a standoff in front of the sector, the pearls of mule are just basically holding hands and it's this sort of kumbaya don't shoot us moment uh, but I, even now i'm sort of it's so kind of forgettable that yeah. i can't even remember exactly how yeah. it plays out i remember clive owen ends up tied up and hanging and swinging in a thing right right i mean i appreciate what the moral the moral you know message of the movie yeah. but i just think that it could have been you know, a better payoff. Whitney really, uh, you know, laid it out really well and is helping me to actually appreciate Mm -hmm. the point of the movie much more, but the delivery of it is pretty lackluster. And I agree with you 100%. What this needed was one more really imaginative sequence to tie this all together. And I think when we talk about movies, not connecting with audiences, I think a huge part of it is how does the audience feel when they walk out of the yes. movie? And mm-hmm. I feel that this movie, unfortunately, whiffs it in the end. Mm-hmm. We get this one last little scene once the conflict is all over where uh, Valerian and Laura Lane are sort of in a like old spaceship that they've escaped on. It's got it's a very James Bondy type moment where, you know, the couple are together, you know, where are they? And they're, in, you know, they're in this right. intimate little setting. Bring on and, the beach. You know, he proposes to her again. She says no, but maybe, you know, if you prove to me later, you know, and so they kiss and make out and we pull out and it's the end. And, you know, I just don't feel like, you know, again, unfortunately, the movie is kind of uh, hoping that you've fallen in love with this relationship, yeah. Yeah. that you're going to walk out with this great feeling and want more. But unfortunately, you haven't really fallen in love with this relationship. You've fallen in love with the world and you want to see more mm, yeah. of the world. But I don't really care about seeing more of these two as a team, at least in terms of a romance. The film would have been stronger if they had abandoned the romance angle, yeah. Uh, or if yeah. they had cast like actors who were clearly like a little bit more uh, on board with one another. That and that's what I hear when I talk to people who watched this movie and weren't impressed was that yeah. they didn't like Valerian. Yeah. They didn't right. like the lead actor, uh, and as such, when you're leaving, all your you're even though you've lived in this dazzling world that they've actually spent a lot of time designing and making sure we're dazzled by and living inside of, and even though it takes place in this very diplomatic world of, of pacifism. When people leave the theater, they're only thinking that it's a bad romance story right? Uh, because those characters aren't that interesting. And uh, as such, it's hard to sell because that seems to be what the filmmakers are putting at the forefront because that's where it ends. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's so much more going on that I'm willing to forgive that the romance doesn't quite work. 
Yeah. And and it goes to a, a popular criticism of a lot of action movies that there has to be a love story at the center of all yeah. of these things. And, and a lot of other critics smarter than I have pointed out that there aren't other genres that they try to squeeze inside action movies. It's like, uh, we have to make this action movie. Yeah, yeah, but what are we going to do to get a, a serial killer horror story somewhere in there? It's like, th- that doesn't happen with other genres other than romance. There always has to be some kind of romantic element in yeah. these action pictures. And I understand that from like a pitch meeting over a coffee table in Malibu sort of way. Yeah. But uh, I don't quite understand it in terms of genre study. And I feel like when a really well-worn genre trope that American audiences are really used to, even if they don't like it, if it's not being done well, they're going to notice. And that's the only thing they tended to notice when it came to Valerian. Also, a lot of it was based in these very European ideas and these very French ideas that I think American audiences weren't really on board with, even though they were with the fifth element. Maybe we were a little bit more accepting of that kind of thing back in the 1990s. I read an article in Forbes that pointed out the reason why there were so many successful original action pictures between 1983 and uh, 1999 was because there wasn't Star Wars at that point. Right. Uh, that that the whole pop thinking we've grown to, accustomed to today was that we're going to get this from a very specific property. We're going to get it from Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, notice they made two st- very successful Star Trek movies that were a lot like Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, before they started, re- Disney started remaking them. Because there wasn't Star Wars to fill that gap. Mm. When Star Wars came out, we didn't need those Star Trek movies to fill the fill the gap anymore and be like Star Wars. Interesting. Uh, and when people started noticing that, uh, like the Marvel uh, formula, which was to take a previous genre and do the superhero version of it. Here's mm-hmm. a space comedy, but it's the superhero version of it. Here's, you know, uh, the the bastard makes good story, but here's the superhero version of it that. When you try to make just a straight version of it anymore, it feels like something's missing. Yeah. It's like, well, okay, this is good, but where's like that genre of franchise familiarity that you've been selling this thing on? Right. And so when something like Valerian comes along, the thing that inspired Star Wars, it feels like uh, it, it's not bringing anything new to the table any longer. It's just a big, exciting, rousing space epic without a twist and I, I would argue that the twist is that it a it's european and b it's so visually dazzling that it actually outstrips a lot of the things you could compare it to but because there's no gimmick there's no like franchise gimmick behind it to bro- draw audiences in they're not going to come see it if you had called this star wars mm-hmm. Uh, like the distant future of star wars and you said that valerian was a jedi people would have been all over this thing Right. Because they have something to like get their hooks into. Yeah. Uh, but because it, you know, deigned to Dahan do something without that pop yeah. twist, it was it was rejected. Anyway, that that's my two cents. I, I know they were beholden to, to the comic book in the sense that the romance was central in the comic, right? I mean, yeah. they always had a rapport. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they just needed to just make it work or minimize it because I see why, you know. It's it's inherent to the property, so they they wanted to have have that. But really, just I think the miscasting uh, of of the stars, and honestly, you know, from you know from a butts in seat viewpoint, you know, Dane DeHaan is no Bruce Willis. You know, I think if if they had gotten a, a bigger draw, maybe more people would have seen it, and then the word of mouth would have been okay because 
everyone said, hey, that, you know, Bruce Willis movie's out again and it's and it's great. Um, and also just, yeah, the, the lack of an imaginative ending really, really hurt it. Um, but if you look, I feel like it did okay worldwide, though, right? I, I feel like this is a bomb in the States, but did it bomb quite as bad everywhere else? Um, I am not sure about the numbers. I, I'm I'm pretty sure the numbers weren't that impressive. Right, right. Especially in the state. Like, this, this was like a $300 million production. It was enormous. Right. And I think it came in like seventh at uh, at the box office right. it's yeah, opening weekend terrible. in america right in america for yeah, sure it made like seven 17 million dollars or something in america i think ultimately it did kind of make up its money but this thing needed to be a billion yeah. dollar hit yes yeah. in order to justify its existence uh europa pictures shuttered because of this movie oh that's too bad uh, everybody had a mm. lot of hope for this thing and it just tore everything asunder yeah. Uh, yeah, it was really, really a problem. <laughs> I want to be that guy who believes that a movie, that something can be made sometime that's not based on one of these mega franchises that can break through to an audience in a big way and hit big. I, I It's a hard <laughs> belief to hold uh, because this seems to be proven wrong again and again and again. I mean, I also think that you have to come at these things maybe not with $300 million productions and <laughs> expect maybe a little less of return. Um, but I mean, I think you have to build franchises basically, but I do feel that this movie Real the the main problem. I, I don't think it was ever going to be a billion dollar club movie, unfortunately, because it doesn't have that franchise element. But I do think that had this had a really great chemistry between the leads, I think it could have done better because I think the word of mouth on it would have been pretty good. Yeah. I th- yeah. I thought the trailers and the marketing were were decent. Not as good as it could have been, but, you know, I saw the trailer of this in front of a lot of movies and I definitely wanted to see it because I'm a fan of of this kind of science fiction. I think that the potential was there for it to at least been the kind of hit that could have possibly generated a sequel down the road that maybe would have generated more interest and whatnot. But I think, unfortunately... With Dane DeHaan specifically, I really kind of think it's Dane. I hate to just lay it all on him, but I think if you had put a more charming, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like a Chris, I mean, with a Chris Pine and Cara uh, Delevingne, I think that would have been fine. You know what I mean? Like if he had, I don't think she sinks it Mm -hmm. because I think she could have been paired with somebody you know, nobody cared about Gal Gadot until, you know, Wonder Woman. And then they really smartly paired her with Chris Pine mm-hmm. and everybody loved that chemistry. You know, I think something similarly could have happened here. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wish it had done well. Yeah. It's a deep shame. It's like, there's no other movies quite like it. Like that in the fifth element, I, it's, I struggle to think of something that's at that level and is that creative and, and has the same visuals panache it's it's really difficult so i'm very happy that it exists because it it is very unique it's a blu-ray that is or even a 4k that's well worth owning just for the visuals alone yes yeah yeah and and i encourage you to watch it in a language other than english because it does play better that way anyway any you guys have any last things to say about valerian Uh, i've said my piece and i will go i will go into the world with 
still with love in my heart for Valerian because I do really dig this movie. I also dig yes. this movie, and I think Chris, you dig it as well. All right, guys. Well, I'm gonna you know go find a psychic jellyfish to put on my head and uh, you know learn all about the universe. Sounds good. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> of course. Thank you for having us. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.